I love that you're watching Transforming Truth. We're in a series called Ignited, and uh, we're talking about reclaiming the revelation from the book of Acts and reintroducing it to the modern church and uh, moving forward in the power and the truth that we saw that was so effective in the first century church that, in my opinion, I think we've lost. So these messages have been an incredible blessing to prepare, to pray over, and to share. And I know you're going to be blessed by the message that's coming up. By the way, if you want to, visit us at transformingtruth.org. Find out a little bit more about who we are and what we're doing. And if the Lord leads, there's an opportunity there for you to get involved in helping us continue to advance the gospel through media. And all of that information is right there on the website. But for now, let's go ahead and get into the Word of God together. Acts chapter 5, verse number 27, it's speaking of the Pharisees having Peter and John in captivity or incarcerated. It says, when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel a teacher of the law held in esteem by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days uh, rose up, excuse me, before these days, uh, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400 joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, and they came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and leave them alone, for if this plan or if this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God... You will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, They did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Don't you like that? I mean, there's something just about reading it, especially the end of that chapter, that, I mean, it's like spiritual Rambo. It makes me just want to go out and, you know, conquer something. It's just so motivating, so so, um, courageous, so inspiring. And yet in the midst of all of that that the disciples do on the back end, that's actually not my focus tonight. My focus is the counsel of this one named Gamaliel, and I want to talk about him, and that's going to be really where we talk about being cautiously pessimistic. And so for the sake of time, let's just launch right into 
the notes tonight, and let's see what we can learn from this 2,000-year-old historical narrative in Acts chapter number 5. I'm going to start in something that you hear me talk about often. I think it's an ongoing message. It's a theme of my heart. I think it needs to be preached regularly. And I think as uh, we are a church that has broken the mold and is going to continue to refuse to be sucked into any system, any man's movement, anything like that, as we want to remain organically New Testament and true to the Scriptures, we need to recognize that it will be a constant call upon us to battle what I'm just about to tell you about. What is it? I'm going to give you something here. I'm going to talk about what religious arrogance looks like. Religious arrogance. What does it look like? We're going to see it in these uh, constant opponents to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the gospel, uh, to Christ himself when he was alive on earth and now against the church. We're talking about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, and in particular the Pharisees here. Look at what offended arrogance, or excuse me, religious arrogance looks like. First of all, it looks like offended shock from those in charge. Look in verse number 27. When they had brought them, when the Pharisees, the religious leaders, had brought Peter and John into the council... They set them before the council, and there's the high priest. He is the bigwig. He is the religious powerhouse. And he questions them. And he says, we strictly charged you not to teach in the name of Jesus, yet here you are filling Jerusalem with all of your doctrine, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, let's remember what's happened. These were the same people that arrested Jesus, set up the mock trials, moved the crowd to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. When Pilate tried to set him, uh, Jesus free, remember, the Jewish leader said, his blood be upon us and our children. Do you remember that? Now, what they didn't anticipate is that, yes, Jesus would die, he would be crucified, but that he would rise from the dead. That kind of messed up their whole plan. The resurrection was very inconvenient for those that opposed the gospel. And so now they're saying, you intend to bring his blood upon us. When in fact, if they had just gone back a few months, that's exactly what they said they were willing to do. But now they were suffering through it. But look at their shock. Look at their outrage. Look at the arrogance within, within them. They're saying to Peter and John, who had just the night before been let out of jail by an angel. Dustin's going to cover that passage in a couple of weeks. Um, they, they now were saying, hey, we're in charge we're the religious leaders. We're the ones that have had control. We're the people. We're the ones that the people have to listen to. And we gave you an order to stop talking about Jesus. And now look at you. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So they were absolutely appalled that these two unlearned, uneducated men, Peter and John, representing the larger church, could dare to defy their religious mandates. You see, when religion goes unopposed, and when I say religion, I'm not talking about faith. I'm talking about man's system, regulated by man, controlled by man, smothered by man, started by man, and when man's done with it, terminated by man. I'm talking about man's way of relating to God, not God's way that we should relate to him, but man's. When, when they have control long enough and God raises up somebody who operates in the power of the Spirit, and the truth of the kingdom. And that individual or those individuals will not allow religious rules that are unbiblical to go unchecked. Those that are in religious power, they don't like it. It was true then. 
It's been true through the Reformation. It's true now in 21st century Bible Belt USA. It is true. Religion is a prostitute. It's an imposter. It's a counterfeit. It sells itself as the genuine article, offering many things, but it's invalid. And yet when somebody stands up and says, no, we have something better. We have the gospel. We have Jesus. We have the word. We have the Holy Spirit. We have individual soul liberty in the sense that there is no mediator between God and man except the man Christ Jesus. We don't need this leader telling us what to do, this leader telling us what to do, or this leader telling us what to do, especially if it's counterfeit. Then those who are in charge are shocked. They can't believe that little old you or little old me would dare make a stand against big old them. And yet that's how the church over the, over the ages, over the centuries, gets purified. The cycle in the church has been God starts something, it's good. But then man wants to control it. Man wants to own it. Man wants to steer it. Man wants to suppress it. And so what God has to do is God has to raise up people outside of that system, bring them into that system, and they affect change from within. And yet they pay a great, great price for it. That's what the church was doing in the first century. So go down into verses 29 through 32. Here's the plain spoken response by the believers. Uh, I believe Peter gives this speech on behalf of himself and John and the church. He says, we must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader or prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those that obey him. Now, we have gone over similar words from Peter and the, the apostles in this series, so I'm not going to belabor it. I think there's like 31 words uh, in that little segment in the Greek. 31 words, something like that. So Peter, in, in the face of persecution, having been imprisoned the night before for doing this very thing, is now simply saying, and I don't see him doing it with like a punk-like attitude. I just think Peter's saying, I, I know we've heard this before from you guys. You're telling us not to preach and not to be witnesses and not to talk about the resurrection, but I need to remind you that Jesus, who you killed, you crucified him, you hung him on a Roman tree, yet your problem's not really with us because it's God that raised him from the dead. And so we have to do what God's told us to do. We hear what you're saying, but, but we're not going to be able to obey you or our apologies, but we're just going to keep preaching Jesus. And so they're, they're being bold and they're practicing in a certain way what we might term as civil disobedience. It's not really against governmental authorities, but it is against the religious hierarchy, the religious rulers. Let me make sure you understand this. Judaism wasn't just a religion. It was really part, it was the culture too. And so when we're talking about Pharisaic Judaism, it's, it's not that everybody in Judaism in that day was insincere. Many were very sincere. Many were waiting for the hope and the consolation of Israel, even among the priests and even some of the Pharisees. And, and there were some of them that would ultimately come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah. But the system as a whole was really about control, the overstandardization of the faith, meaning adding law upon law upon law, man's laws, and to the point where it's almost like a tree that has so many ornaments on it, 
All you can see is the ornaments. You can no longer see the tree. Well, the tree was God's truth, but the ornaments was everything that uh, this leader would hang on it and this leader would hang on it. And so they lost the truth in, in, the, in the ornamentation of all of man's standards, man's traditions, and man's ways. And what the gospel did is it came and it shook the tree. And all the ornaments fell off. And what Peter and John were saying is, don't put them back on because we don't need them. We have the king. We have the savior. He's been crucified. Our sins are paid for. He's risen from the dead. He's alive forevermore. And if you will believe, God the spirit will invade your life and you will become obedient unto the faith. And so Peter's given the gospel just in a nutshell there. And he's just saying, I'm not going to play the game with you. You know, it's amazing to me. These guys were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. I'm talking about the, the, the apostles. They had seen Jesus. Jesus had appeared to more than 500 people after the resurrection. And so many people had seen him dead, but then had seen him alive. I mean, listen, Jesus moved about in a glorified, resurrected human body. He had barbecue fish on the beach after the resurrection with the disciples. He ate, he moved, he was able to be touched and seen. And so these guys were convinced. And so when you're telling them, hey, we're going to kill you, they're like, go ahead. We watched you kill our Savior. It really doesn't hold sway over us anymore. They had already died to themselves. And a person that has died to themselves and has been risen unto Christ and risen unto the gospel, and they're convinced of it, is going to live with some boldness. And sometimes that boldness has to be spoken. Um, what does that have to do with me and you today? Well, listen, I, I don't think Christians need to be any more obnoxious than what we've been in the past 50 years in America. Nobody gets brought into the kingdom because we've elevated our obnoxiousness as Christians. That's not what I want to advocate. But I don't want to advocate either that we be apologetic for what we believe. That, that we back off and just kind of give sway to the culture and just say, well, there's more of them, they're louder than us, and so let's just get in our little church corner in our holy huddle, and we'll just pray for Jesus to come back, and hopefully everybody will leave us alone until then. That's not the Great Commission. The Great Commission is that we would go in and we would leaven the lump of our culture, that we would go in and move and saturate and affect people for Jesus. And we can't do that if we're always going in reverse and apologizing that we're followers of Jesus. So we've got to be bold. So get down into the last verse there in verse number 33. They have told the leaders that they're not going to shut up. And so this is what religious arrogance looks like. Unrepentant plans to silence the truth. So verse number 33. When they, the Pharisees, heard this, the council actually heard this, they were enraged. Enraged. Let your Bible say what it says. They were enraged and they wanted to kill them. It's the same spirit that moved in them when they couldn't win with Jesus. And this is what religion does. When religion can't intimidate, when religion can't threaten and be successful, when it can't um, accomplish anything through bullying, religion only has one option left and that is execution. And sometimes, and as in this case, it meant physical execution. They were going to physically kill these guys. Now, in our culture, we're not seeing that happen. But I'm going to tell you, um, it would very much please the American culture. I'm talking about those that are of the world system. It would, they would love it if we would just go away. Or, or at least our beliefs go away and our communication of the, those beliefs. And right now, I think we're in the bullied phase. And I don't feel like a victim, by the way, because Jesus Christ lives in me and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So don't feel sorry for me. Don't send me flowers. I won't send them to you. I'm not saying, woe, woe are we, 
because, you know, we're Christians and they don't like us anymore. I'm not, I'm not looking for any sympathy. What I am going to do, though, is say, let's be realistic. Let's extract, extract our head from the sand and recognize that the culture is no friend to the Bible-believing Christian. And so I'm going to tell you right now we're in the bullying phase. I, I re, I've seen this in my lifetime. I'm 46 years old, and I remember growing up, it was still a good thing to be a Christian. It was still a good thing to go to church. You, even 25 years ago, inviting people to church, knocking on doors. I'll never forget, I watched the shift happen over about a seven-year period. We'd go out and knock on doors every Tuesday night. And I remember when I first started in the early 19, or the mid-1990s, people would talk to you. They'd let you come in. Uh, they would listen to the gospel. And then around the late 90s something shifted man and they were mad when you knocked on their door they did not want to let you in they would curse you out we got run out of a neighborhood one time ran a whole bunch of us out of the neighborhood and all we were doing is inviting people to church and that was 20 years ago almost and so now what is it happening well we're getting we're, we're in that stage where now um, legislation's being passed to quiet us and transcripts of pastors sermons are being inspected in certain places and they're, 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 they're wanting to, to promote laws that say what a preacher or a Christian can and cannot say. And if they don't like what you're saying, eventually they're going to slap it with some form of a hate speech level, a label. So again, I don't want you to feel sorry for me, but I don't want us to be stupid about it either. And so if that's where we are now, let me just ask a reasonable question. As time passes, do you think it's going to get better or worse? Let's just say no revival happens. If no revival happens, which it can, I'm, I'm praying for a revival, but let's just say as things continue as they are, we're in the bullying stage now, there's not a whole lot left. Um, I've, I've told my kids this, and say, Jeff, you're probably going to have to get them counseling for saying this to them. I, I've told my kids, hey, look, it's possible that one day that daddy has to make a decision between going to jail or speaking the truth. And you should pray for your leaders because I don't want to get up here and say, bless God, I'll never cave in. You that think you stand, you better be careful lest you fall. That's what the scriptures teach us. So pray that we would be bold in this thing. But regardless of what we do, what we see in these leaders here is they hated the truth so much. Peter just told them that they were accountable to God for rejecting the Messiah. But he also mentioned that they could repent but instead of repenting, they hardened their hearts even more, and they said, all right, that's enough. We're going to kill these men. And that's where Gamaliel steps up. That's where we're going to learn something, because all of a sudden, I'm going to take the intensity down from this persecution and all of that. That's the context of it. That's why I set that up. But I want to look at the counsel that is given by one of the Pharisees. He's actually one of them but he gives us something here that can help me and you when we're looking at something and we're disagreeing with it and we're threatened by it and we're not so sure if God's in it and we want to silence it or stop it or remove it or run from it. Now, I, I am not about to say you're like the Pharisees and you hate the gospel and you're, uh, I'm not even beginning to put us in that same kind of level, but I am saying this, you and I need to make up our minds about some things that when God is operating as God desires to operate, it is highly likely he's going to be doing some things that are going to stretch your thinking. God is not here to add extra layers of cushion in our comfort zone. It's not in the Bible. And so God reserves the right 
to really shake things up from time to time. And I can tell you, there have been times in my Christian life where I've, I've seen something happen in the kingdom, maybe once or over a period of time, and I've said to myself, I don't know if that's God or not. And then there have been times where I've said, I don't think that that is God. I'm not sure, but I'm kind of sure. I am cautiously pessimistic. What do I do about this? And it's been this counsel from Gamaliel that has probably saved me from a hundred mistakes in this area. So I want to help you with this if you need help. What does tempered wisdom sound like? What tempered wisdom, pardon me, sounds like? Here comes Gamaliel, and we're going to see him in three different ways. First of all, an open mind among the closed. Look in verse number 34. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men, that's Peter and John, outside for a little while. And in their absence, he said to the, the council, men of Israel, be careful. Be careful what you are about to do with these men. Okay. The Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day, especially the Pharisees and the scribes, were not known as the most open-minded people. They were studious. They were sincere. They were extremely disciplined. They were devoted in such a way that it became over-the-top legalism as a system. But one thing I want to be careful when I talk about the Pharisees, I don't want to ever paint them as insincere. They were wrong, but they were doing what they were doing with zeal, but not a zeal according to knowledge. So they were operating at full maximum capacity according to what they had been taught and what they had believed for generations. Now, Gamaliel was a bigwig among these people. In Acts chapter 22, Paul gives his testimony, and he says, I was a student who sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Let me encourage you to use your sanctified imagination here. It's not entirely impossible for us to believe that while all of this was going on, Paul might have been in the very presence of what was going on here, listening. He would have been Saul of Tarsus at that time, listening to what was being said by Gamaliel. So Gamaliel stands up, and with an open mind, he says, whoa, hey guys, I think we need to slow down a little bit. Let me give you this. I don't know that I have a good track record, and I'm going to assume you don't either, of saying I feel really good about that knee-jerk reaction I gave that time. Don't we usually end up saying, I wish I had waited. I wish I had listened. I wish I hadn't made a decision so hastily. I mean, there have been times where I've made the right decision, but I did it hastily and without waiting that I still regretted the outcome, even though I may have been right. But I'm going to tell you, I don't know very often in a a situation of conflict, and this is conflict. This is major conflict for them right there. I don't know that I've ever said, boy, I really regret waiting. I, I wish I had prayed less, waited less, and just been impulsive. That's just usually not our testimony after a conflict. And so they're about to kill these guys. Now, we don't know what's going on in Gamaliel's heart. There is, by the way, extra biblical tradition that says he eventually converted to Christianity. We don't know if that's true or not. But I will say this. In this moment, he's rescuing two apostles' lives. 
And he's doing it through sound reason that I want to learn from. And so he, re- he, he keeps an open mind. So let's just stop there for a second. And especially in a context like Newbridge, and if you're a guest here at Newbridge, Newbridge is the byproduct of two churches coming to a place where they, they, they sensed, and primarily through their leaders, but eventually through a congregational consensus, two congregations saying, we want to abandon the pathway denominationally that we were once on. We don't want to be confined. We don't want to be restricted. We believe the Bible is sufficient. We trust in the Holy Spirit to guide us. We're going to come together and we're going to say no to some things we used to say yes to. And we're going to say yes to some things we used to say no to. So all of that is, is a recipe for a lot of change and it makes you think. Why? Because you lose your crutches. You lean on things. You learn to lean on things. Listen, I was a Baptist for 20 something years and, and I just learned how to think, worship, sing, minister, operate as a Baptist. And I want to tell you something. 99% of what I learned as a Baptist is excellent, and I still believe it. The only part of my Baptist upbringing that I disagreed with, the only part, is that I, I, I do believe that the typical standard Baptist doctrine is wrong biblically on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Everything else I still believe. But when we came to that 1%, And when I finally said, I've got to obey God, and I can't obey man anymore, and you put yourself out there, conflict happens. And the conflict doesn't come from wicked people. It comes from people that equally love the Lord, but they're saying, oh, wait a minute. I don't know if this is of God. I'm going to be either outraged and impulsive and, and, you know, cause trouble or move and leave, or maybe I should be cautiously pessimistic. Maybe I should say, I don't think that's of the Lord. But, you know, I read somewhere a wise, wise man in my Bible, I think it was Acts chapter 5, told me to take care what I do in situations like these. You see the practicality of this counsel? If you don't see it yet, you're about to see it even more because Gamaliel takes it even further. He gives us, look in verses 36 and 37. I call this a macro view among the micro. So he's an open mind among the closed, and this is his macro view among the micro view. He says, before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined Thutis. Now, Thutis was killed, Gamaliel testifies, and all who followed him were dispersed, and it came to nothing. That's case study number one. Case study number two. After him, Judas, not the bad Judas that we know of, but a different bad Judas. Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census, and he drew away some of the people after him. And Gamaliel says, do y'all remember? He too perished, and all who followed him was scattered. Okay, look at what Gamaliel does. He moves off the situation at hand. Right now, everybody's focused on John and Peter. They're about to call them back in, order their execution. They're going to stone them to death. That's what the plan is. And, and Gamaliel takes a step back, and he looks at the big picture. And he wants them to see the big picture. Because right now, they're just mad at these two guys who just told them they're guilty of murdering the Messiah. And religious people don't like to be convicted And religious people don't ever like to accept blame. And religious people rarely admit they're wrong. And so what's the easier option? Well, let's just shut them up permanently. And so they decide they want to kill him. And Gamaliel is is being used of God right here. And and Gamaliel says, hey, do y'all remember Thutis? What a terrible name. That's a terrible name. Thutis, and and you remember how Thutis, he... He said that he was the Messiah, or he was, it was kind of a pseudo-Messiah. It was these guys that thought God had raised them up, both of them. We'll just take them together. Thutis and Judas. <laughs> yeah. They both believed God had raised them up 
to bring a revolt against Rome so that Israel would be set free and the glory would return to Israel. So they were operating in what I call a pseudo-messianic role. They fancied themselves the deliverers. And Gamaliel says, yeah, I remember Thutis, if y'all remember correctly, about 400 people went after him. It would have been noteworthy. It would have been, you know, in the record. It would have been known to everybody. And Gamaliel says, yeah, it didn't, didn't end too well for him. They killed him, and the little movement he started went away. And then basically it says the same thing about Judas. So watch what happens here. You take a step back and you look at the big picture. Because it's real easy in the moment to boil the entire kingdom down to whatever you're, you're in conflict about. Maybe you're upset about something. It could be in your church. It could be in your family. It could just be something in your heart. And you've got this one area. Everything else might be going really copacetic. Everything's moving okay. But you've got this one area in your family, one area in your church, one area in your own heart, and you're unsettled about it. And suddenly, that's all you think about. It's all you see. And what happens is you're seeing the big picture of what, who God is and what God's doing, but you're seeing it through the lens of this one little thing. And typically, that doesn't serve us very well. And so Gamaliel says, hold on, fellas, before you act rashly, before you make a decision, before you, and in this case, kill these men, before you do that, let's remember that this is, this is not new in the kingdom. And he gives them the two case studies. So how do we work through that? Well, friends, I want you to know that a, a large facet of the kingdom is relationship. Not just our relationship vertically between us and God, but God actually just incredibly prioritizes our relationships with each other. And so we're commanded in Scripture more than once to bear with one another, to serve one another, to esteem others better than ourselves. We're called to patience. We're called to wait on God, to be still and know that He is the God He says He is. We are, we are reminded over and over again, from the Proverbs to the book of Revelation, even Jesus said, it's in your patience that you possess your souls. And so we're told constantly, don't respond hastily. We're actually allowed, and this is what frees me up so much, and I'm going to give it to you here in just a second. We're actually called not to spring into action every time we're concerned that something's slightly askew. And yet there's some of us, especially, how many of you, I think I asked this last week, how many of you are type A in here? Raise your hand if you're type A. Oh, well, we're safe. There's only like five of us in here. But we can still mess you up, amen? I mean, we get together. Type A's, when they get off track, they can jack up your world. I mean, it can be messed up. And so type A people are the, usually the first ones to respond. You know, it's ready, fire, aim. That's kind of the way we operate. And so what, what, what Gamaliel is saying here is he's saying, hey, just take a step back, be careful, slow down about what you're about to do, and remember the big picture. I'm going to free you up here. God is not dependent upon you making a quick decision to defend his honor. He's not. I think it was Winston Churchill. I don't think he was talking about the Lord. I think he was talking about uh, uh, Great Britain. But he said, the lion doesn't need to be defended. It just needs to be let out of its cage. And, and sometimes I think we feel like, and it's a, it's a good desire. We don't want God to be dishonored in any way. But at times, let me tell you something. Relationships bring risk. And it, to the degree that we have to have everything just so, 
Eventually, our relationships will be sacrificed on that altar of having things just so. It's true in churches. Um, I remember, and forgive me, I'll give you a little history here. Um, When we were going through the explanation theologically of why I believe the gifts of the Holy Spirit are active and operative, and that's been the biggest challenge I've ever gone through in ministry. I've been through a lot of challenges, but they paled in comparison to this one because this one was a theological one. And if you're going to make theological changes, you better be able to substantiate it with the Scriptures. And so as, as our former elder group met together in those days, I said, I'm, I'm just going to teach through this scripturally. And both within our leadership and then in the church in general, there was this desire to silence it. No, we don't want to hear that preaching. No, we're not going to stay if that's what you're going to preach. And I remember in my naivete, I remember thinking, I thought we were Bible believers. And this is what I learned. Most, let me be careful, I'm trying to watch how I say things. Many Christians would prefer to believe what people say the Bible says than what the Bible actually says. And I'm going to tell you something, if we're going to grow in Jesus, we, we have to at times turn loose of what people said the Bible says, and we have to just say, what does the Bible say? But I did find it was heartbreaking because relationships were lost. They were lost. And I wasn't up here, you know, I mean, I may preach with boldness, but I'll tell you something, pastorally, I wept. My staff saw me weep, my wife saw me weep, my kids saw me weep, because everybody that left, I wasn't weeping primarily for me, I'm weeping because they're leaving in a commitment to error because they were afraid to hear the truth. And I remember reasoning with some of them just saying, well, why don't you wait until I finish the series, and then you'll actually know what I believe. And you'll, you'll, give, you'll have the opportunity to correct me if I'm wrong. I remember one fellow said, <laughs> he said, nobody wins an argument with you. And I thought, I'm not trying to argue. I'm just trying to teach the scriptures. But the point being is this, what was in them on the gifts of the spirit is probably in me about something else. In other words, I can be as hard-headed on something. I have the potential to be as obstinate. I can be as clingy to my ways when God starts bringing something to strip those ways from me. It's in all of us. So please don't misunderstand me. I'm not pointing to the finger and saying all those people that disagreed with me were, were bad people. They were actually great people, but I was heartbroken that they were afraid to let the truth speak. They were afraid to wait. And so relationships were lost. So I want to I counsel you in that just to say this. Hey, listen, don't act hastily. Don't boil a person or a church or anybody in your family down to the only the thing that you disagree with them about. I mean, good night alive. What would we do if Jesus walked away every time he disagreed with something going on in our heads or coming out of our mouths or being acted out in our lives? He just presses in closer. You know, and he just he just refuses to sacrifice the relationship when there is mostly agreement and there may be one thing that's out of line. He doesn't abandon us. He doesn't walk away. He just presses in in love and faithfulness. So let's go further in this. I'm going to give you, I probably only have time for the last thing that Gamaliel said. I don't know if I'll uh, get to the last two verses, but so the macro view among the micro, the open mind among the closed minds, and then I like this one, a humble solo within a proud chorus. He's one voice. 
but he's in a, a choir of Pharisees. But listen to what he does with his one voice. Verse 38. He goes on, he says, So in the present case, as pertaining to these two men we're about to kill, keep away from these men. <laughs> Leave them alone. Watch this. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if this is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And to their credit, look at those next words. So they took his advice. Friends, this has the potential to liberate us. When I see something that I'm cautiously pessimistic about, and I, I live, I'm, I'm more skeptical than I am optimistic. I wish that wasn't the case, but I'm a critical thinker. I'm usually kind of saying, what's the angle here? I don't know about this. I'm growing out of that a little bit, but that's still my nature. My nature is to think, I don't know, I'm a little suspicious. And some of you are like that too. The... The tendency for people like us is that we want to fight what we're not sure is right. And the counsel here is this. When you don't know, don't act. When you don't know, if you're not sure, and we're talking about kingdom matters here. Talking about kingdom matters. When you see something going on in the kingdom, when you're being stretched by what you see happening around you, are happening within you and fear boils up or concern boils up and you're just not sure hey is this of God or is this of man but if you're not sure and you have obeyed the counsel to wait and be careful just hold on keep, keep the big picture view keep the macro view don't get lost in the weeds take a breath exhale unclench and just wait a minute and then I love this counsel he says now look if all this, this, this Christianity thing, Gamaliel's telling them, if this is just another Thutis and Judas thing, listen, just leave it alone. Just leave it alone. It's going to peter out just like everything else. It's just going to drizzle away, and we've already seen that. That's what will happen. But let me just insert my opinion. You don't have to agree with this. I'm kind of of the opinion that Gamaliel was thinking, mm, I think this is legit. I'm thinking this Christianity thing is legit. Something is up here. You know, you got to remember just a chapter or two earlier, you got a, a man who had been a, a paralyzed, a cripple for his, his 40 plus years of life. And he was now standing. That's what started this whole problem in the first place. And so Gamaliel wasn't, you know, he didn't just fall off the truck. He's not a, he's not a rookie. He's an old guy. And he's saying something's up here. But anyway, he says this. He says, yeah, if it's not of the Lord... Just leave it alone. It'll fizzle out on its own. We don't have to do anything. If it's of man, and especially if God's opposing it, God will shut it down. So we don't really have to act here, fellas. And then he adds this. But if this thing is of the Lord, when you fight them, you will be fighting God. And that got to him. So how do we apply this right now? Listen. I'm, a, I'm one of the pastors of Newbridge Church, so I'm going to keep it right here in-house. But there will be people watching this on television or listening online. I hope they can apply this to wherever they worship and serve, and they have a covenant and relationship and community uh, in the faith with other people. Um, th if God's moving, he's going to be stretching people. That's just the way he does it. God's not trying to maintain 
what he used to do. God reserves the right to, behold, I do a new thing. And Jesus at the back of the Bible is saying, I am making all things new. So he's not done yet. So he's still working. He is still, that wasn't like before you were born and it stopped when you got saved. No, he is still stretching. He is still creative. He is still working. He may not, listen, I'm not saying he's going to oppose his word because he never will. He will never violate his word. But if we dare think that everything God would ever do must have a precedent, must have a clear biblical precedent, it's got to be in there, or I'm not going to believe it, then we have to jettison a lot of our Christian lives. Matter of fact, you should say, well, Jeff, um, if God doesn't speak and God doesn't work like that anymore, Jeff, who called you to ministry? Because there's no verse in the Bible that says, Jeff Lyle, you shall preach the word of God. In the it's just not there. So he's still talking. He's still speaking. It can be non-biblical without it being unbiblical. Non-biblical just means there's not a precedent for it in Scripture. Unbiblical means it violates a precedent in Scripture. Unbiblical is wrong. Non-biblical may contain some of the greatest works God has yet to do in your life. It just means there's not a clear precedent for everything that has happened uh, in the Christian life among the myriads of believers. So he tells them, hey, I, I don't think we should kill these two guys. And I don't really think we should mess with the Christians because if it's not of our God whom we honor and love, listen, they were blind. They were ignorant concerning who the Messiah was. They, they had hardened hearts. They were not believing. They really thought they were doing the right thing. Isn't it amazing? These were the Bible students. These were the most conservative theological people in Jerusalem at that time. They were the most disciplined. They were the most sincere. They were the most biblically educated, and they were the wrong. They were in the wrong. They were so sincere, but they missed it. And so humble souls can look at them and say, you know, it might be possible that I miss it sometimes. Maybe I've got the propensity to be sincere, disciplined, conservative in my beliefs about the Bible. In other words, they were Bible believers. Maybe I can be a Bible-believing, sincere, disciplined, committed follower of God, and yet maybe I can get it wrong because they sure did. And so what it does is we just humble ourselves and say, Maybe I ought to take a step back. Maybe, maybe this conflict or situation or this concern, maybe it doesn't need my voice right now. Maybe I don't have to straighten this out. Maybe I don't have to make a stand. Maybe I don't have to assert myself in this. Maybe, yeah, I'll just let God take care of his business on this one. And if this isn't of him, matter of fact, I think I'm going to enjoy watching God take care of this because he'll stop it. But if it is of him... I certainly don't want to be on the wrong side of that. So what do we do with it? When you have a little pessimism in your heart, and I think a little pessimism can be healthy if you, if you submit it to the Holy Spirit. If you're pessimistic about everything, you got issues. I mean, <laughs> you got to grow. But I think we should be discerning and at times critical in our thinking about what we see that goes on in the name of Jesus, because not all of it's real. But there's going to be times where it's clear-cut. That's not of God. That violates Scripture. That is not of God. There's going to be other times where it violates your sense of what you think ought to happen. And that's not the same thing as violating God. Oh, y'all did not hear me on that. Listen, just because you're uncomfortable doesn't mean it's unbiblical. And so what do we do? Well, we don't spring into action and say, Jesus has told me to say something about this. Because if you're not careful... 
you're going to be on the wrong side of the equation. And so here's where you get freed up. Oh, I don't have to do anything about this. I don't have to denounce it, and I don't have to endorse it. I don't have to vote yay or nay. I'm going to watch and see what God does because in the end, he's going to prove whether this thing is of him or not. And it frees you up and you get to go back and join. You don't get consumed by this thing, this one little thing in the kingdom that has been owning your thoughts and owning your mind and owning your heart and dominating your relationships and souring your thinking and making you afraid that you might get something wrong and misstep and, you know, the thunder of God's going to come crashing down on you. No, honor him by waiting on him and put your hand to the plow on the things you do know are of him and leave the things that are debatable to those that want to debate it and just trust the Lord. And so... Let me give you this. It's just a statement. It'll be up on the screen. I think they have a slide for this. here's Here's the summary statement. We must leave room for the reality that God may choose to operate in ways for which we have no expectation nor understanding. That honors the Lord. Just because you didn't expect he'd work that way doesn't mean he can't. Just because I don't understand what he's doing doesn't mean that he's not doing it. If we could only see, Lord, help us to understand all that we don't understand. In other words, I'm not asking for understanding of the thing that I don't understand. I'm asking God to help me understand that I don't understand things. In other words, Lord, help me to realize I know less than I actually know. We walk around like we got like 99% of the kingdom summed up. I don't even know if we have 1% of it because he's God. The kingdom is God. And and, and so we fight over things as if, man, if if I can just get this one little piece of the puzzle put in there, I've got God defined. And I can go around and define God to you, and I can get Polly to understand that I got God defined. She'll agree with me, and I'm going to get Michael to do it, and I'm going to get Jeff over here to do it. And once they understand that I understand, and then some Yahoo comes along with something I don't understand. So I either have to humble myself and admit, oh, there's some things I don't understand. Or I can be like these religious powerhouses and try to silence that person. That's where people fight and they split and they fracture relationships. Um, look at the person next to you and say, God bless you. You don't have to agree with me. Go ahead. Do it. Go ahead. You can still be saved. And not agree with the person that you sit next to. They don't have to agree with you, and you don't have to agree with them. And by the way, let me say this. You don't have to agree with me. I know I've got a pulpit, and it's kind of a one-way conversation, and I get to yell. You know, I'm loud. I'm kind of dogmatic. And that's just, that's pulpit. I don't, I don't walk around the office doing that. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that way. Um, I, I get challenged regularly, and I learn from it. And so all I'm saying is this. That's not all I'm saying, but what I'm trying to say, make sure we can leave with this. I'm not going to be able to finish the text tonight. I'm already out of time. But the the point is this. I don't want you losing any sleep and, and sacrificing relationships and living with struggle about things that God has not even asked you to settle. And you have the glorious right to say this, ha, Gamaliel taught me that I don't have to worry about it anymore. 
Say, Jeff, what was your message about Wednesday night? Oh, well, I just got to tell everybody that they don't have to worry about it anymore. <laughs> and listen, it's biblical. Because there's not a thing in the world God's saying, I really want you to toil in anxiety over this another day. I really want you tied up in a tighter knot on this issue. Let it be, if it needs to be, somebody else's dilemma. And in the meantime, you place all of your energy and your focus under the things you know God has made clear to you. Walk those out. Keep an eye on this pessimistic, cautiously pessimistic attitude or, or situation. Keep an eye on it just to see what God does. But if you're not sure, let somebody else handle it. And I'm going to promise you something. It'll free you up. It'll make your home church a whole lot sweeter for everybody. And ultimately, God's going to look down at you and he's going to say, it took faith and courage in you, my daughter, to let that thing go. And I'm pleased with that. My son, it took a whole lot of humility for you to decide you wouldn't speak to that anymore. And I'm pleased in you. And a new level of blessing can find all of us.